0: Welcome to the Pubcast, your inside look at electronic publishing, from ebooks to websites to podcasts and more. Join us as we interview the professionals on the cutting edge of publishing.
1: This is Hillary Cody for Pubcast. I'm here today with Patrick Murr from Plunkett Lake Press. Great to have you here today, Patrick. Can you please start off by giving me a little bit of information about Plunkett Lake, what you guys do, how you started?
0: Basically, three years ago, my wife, who's a published, well-known author, and I, who is more of a technology-type person, had the idea that it might it might make sense, given the growth of electronic books, to make available, again, some great titles of nonfiction. So we are basically interested in making available worldwide, in the form of e-books, great literary nonfiction. Memoirs, biographies, autobiographies, texts of historical interest, etc. Under three years ago, the assumption that various types of readers are not well served today, basically by buying a used book, because these books are generally out of print. The books that we reissue as ebooks are generally out of print. And so if you are, say, somebody in China and you want to buy an ebook on Amazon.com, shipping costs will be huge you're a student here in the United States and you have an assignment for a class that requires you to read one of these titles, it may be much more convenient to spend only nine dollars ninety nine cents and have the book in sixty seconds than having to order it, to get it shipped, to receive it, etc. etc. If you are an elderly person, it may be much more efficient to be able to enlarge the font and read more comfortably than dealing with a fifty year old used possibly annotated book. If you're a traveler, you may not want to carry, for example, Stefan Zweig's Balzac, which is about 400 pages long and can also be used as a door stopper. So these are all the kind of market segments we have in mind. And so we started, frankly, in part as a hobby, and we are discovering that there is, in fact, demand for what we're doing. We are profiting an interesting niche. We have literally revived some titles, Balzac by Stefan Zweig being one of them, that otherwise are almost impossible to find. In fact, I still remember myself getting out of Harvard's uh, Widener Library a copy of Jan Masaryk's "Speaking to My Country," which is a collection of his speeches over the BBC to a Nazi-occupied Czechoslovakia during World War II, which nobody had borrowed for something like 30 years, and I handled it as a you know as one would, I suppose, the Dead Sea Scrolls. <laughs> Uh, you know, scanning it page by page and then returning it religiously to, to Widener. My point here is that finding a copy of Speaking to My Country by Jan Masaryk is an almost impossible task, Or if you do, you will spend several hundred dollars for, again, a text that is very interesting but ought to be widely available.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Now, can you give me a better idea of what your position is? What do you do on a day-to-day basis? That sort of thing.
0: Sure. Well, the whole of Plunkett Lake Press is two people. Uh, myself and my wife. My wife is kind of the literary expert. She is our editorial board, if you will. And and that's it. And I do all the rest. So let me start again with with, uh, my wife, Helen Epstein. She's the author of Children of the Holocaust, which was a well-known book when it came out in 1978 or thereabouts. She's published in total five books, and she's working on her sixth right now. She's also a former tenured professor of journalism at NYU and contributes to to many publications, including in the Boston area, Arts Fuse, which is an interesting online blog that reviews arts events, anything from music to books, uh, theater and so forth. So she basically will decide which books we ought to reissue as ebooks. Sometimes she comes with the ideas herself. More often, we talk to people and we receive suggestions and we're told, you know, this is a great biography. Why don't you republish it? So once she feels we should do it, then I do all the rest. And all the rest means, first of all, to identify who owns the electronic rights, which sometimes turns into a very complex research effort worldwide, I I, I should say, because many of our authors are from Europe, and their descendants may live anywhere on the planet, of course. So that involves finding the descendants of the authors and or speaking with the publisher of the last physical edition of the book, which in itself is an interesting exercise because we have discovered that large publishers tend to make assertions about uh, their ownership of electronic rights that are sometimes plain wrong. They do this intentionally or not, I don't know, but I have found that there is a clear tendency for very large publishing houses to assume they own all the rights, which in 2001, a U.S. court in a case that is very important called Random House v. Rosetta Books uh, decided, and you may know this, in a case that involved Kurt uh, Vonnegut and many other famous authors, that an ebook is simply a different thing than a book, period. And so, um, unless, um, the, the original contract explicitly mentioned ebooks, which is very unlikely for the kinds of books we publish because they came out, you know, 20, 30, 50 years ago. Or, more importantly, unless the contract specifically indicates that the publisher has the right to publish the book using any technology, even if not yet invented or language equivalent, then the electronic rights, in fact, are with the estate of the author, not with the publisher. So I have to sort of this out. And once the situation is clear, then we have a standard contract that we sign with the owners of the electronic rights, whereby, and this is important information, I think, for the world. We share 50% of our electronic revenues with the proprietors, with the owners of the electronic rights. So really what we're doing is a partnership with the either authors, some of our authors are still alive, by the way, or their estates. It's really a partnership to revive these titles. So once that's in place, I basically get a copy of the book and scan it using a high-speed scanner and do optical character recognition to digitize the text. And most people who don't know the industry, that certainly doesn't include you and your fellow students at Emerson, I'm sure, would assume that it's all ready to go. But that's a major mistake. The the easy part is to scan and digitize the book. The complex part is then to find the 1% to 2% of errors that the actually Russian software that does optical character recognition makes in reading the file. For example, the word little, L-I-T-T-L-E, often is read as L-I-T-D-E, because the D-E looks like T-L-E in certain fonts and sizes, or a comma will be replaced by a period, or literally a plaque in the paper itself will turn into a hyphen or a carrot or a character that doesn't belong there. So that needs to be done manually. And I've developed some clever technologies to do it as efficiently as I can. And I will say that literally in all the books we've published, we have found typos made by anybody from Penguin to Random House to smaller publishers. So today's technology literally allows me to clean up the original text in a way that would have been very hard in the past. Once that's done, we upload the book to our distribution channels, and the book is available for sale worldwide.
1: So is that done in PDFs or some other kind of software?
0: I happen to produce all the files uh, as Word files, and three of the four channels we now use accept Word files and convert them to EPUBs themselves. Fourth, which is uh, Apple for their iBookstore, requires uh, an EPUB file. And it turns out that if you use Apple's, I think it's about twenty dollars, Pages software, put a word file in Pages, and then re-export it after some manipulations into EPUB, and create an EPUB, which I, I then upload to Apple's iBookstore. That one last thing, which I need to do every six months, because that's when we send our royalty checks to our authors. Every six months, I have to collate all the sales and add up. The 50% of revenues that have accrued to each individual author and send at this point something like 25 different checks because we have about 25 authors on our list right now.
1: So, what are the four channels that you use to publish on?
0: They're actually on our website, Com. One can find one page per author. At the bottom of each page, one can find all the ebooks by that author. By clicking on each cover, one gets to a more detailed page about each ebook. And next to the cover and the price of the ebook, which is, by the way, generally $9.99, there are four links to each of the channels. Amazon for a Kindle type uh, ebook. Barnes and Noble for a Nook ebook. Apple for an iBook store or iTunes type ebook. And Kobo is strong mainly in Canada, Australia, and so forth. We'll add that we tried to also work with Sony, but uh, discovered that their system is just totally unwieldy. We've told them in all candor. We've also discovered that their market share is dropping like a stone. So, you know, I suppose their survival is, in my mind, questionable and certainly not worth my time accommodating their totally archaic work method. I will, by the way, say the same of Google Books, interestingly. You know, I was very excited to receive emails from Google telling me that I could now publish with them. And After a few exchanges, I discovered that they somehow kept control of the pricing, which is totally unacceptable to me. And they agreed that their platform is not quite up to snuff. They're working on improving it. It's interesting for me as a former management consultant with the Boston Consulting Group to realize that. Such major corporations as Google, which by the way, also has superb products. I use their certainly email program and their search technologies and so forth, but literally messed up because I believe they use some subcontractors, their interface with the smaller electronic publishers. So as soon as they have something that comes even close to Amazon, Nook, Kobo, or Apple, we certainly will be also on the Google Play uh, platform, but not now.
1: Do you find that one platform is purchased more often than the others?
0: Oh, yes, very much so. In fact, I have all those statistics. As I mentioned in passing, I'm a former consultant with Boston Consulting Group. If I took the time, I could tell you to the penny or to the unit how many ebooks we've sold of each title and each platform since we started working three years ago. In round numbers, I will say that uh, right now we sell about 15 ebooks per day on Amazon worldwide. Amazon itself, as you know, has a U.S. site, but also country-specific sites for the U.K., Germany, France, Spain, Italy, Canada, Japan, and Brazil right now. So in total, on all of these, we sell about 15 titles a day. I would say that of those 15, about 85% are in the U.S., and only 15% are in the other six or so countries I mentioned. In addition to the 15 a day, we sell about two per day on Apple, one per day on Nook and 10 books, 10 ebooks a month on Kobo, which is much smaller. Amazon is clearly the gorilla of the industry. And I personally believe that it's because their, their Kindle cheap tablet is very, you know, simple to use and convenient for, for serious readers. Let's say, by the way, that we are doing children's picture books and things of that sort. Nook would be much more prominent, but for what we call serious readers of literary nonfiction, which is basically text and once in a while a few photos, often black and white, given the age of the topics we address, Kindle is by far the most valuable resource for readers simply because it has a much wider product offering than anybody else. Apple is growing fast, I believe, but can't be sure, but it's because the iPad is a very popular device, as well as the iPhone. And clearly, the Apple iBook Store is very nicely integrated into the the hardware of the iPad and the software and so forth.
1: Those statistics seem to be pretty consistent across the entire ebook market.
0: Right, and those are also the statistics that show Sony dropping like a stone. I don't understand how a well-run company can let that happen. Either they should close shop or get their act together.
1: So, what do you think the future of the industry is? Where is it going?
0: Well, we got interested in this. For several reasons, which are very closely associated with the way my instincts, close to any hard data, tell me the industry is going. I believe large publishers, based on the experience my wife has seen through her own books over time, are frankly doing less and less of what they're supposed to do. If you're an author today, you'll be lucky if you get an editor, as in a person, at any of the large publishers. We have even heard, which I find frankly outrageous, that some authors will hire at their own expense somebody to work with to, to, you know, improve the quality of a book they're working on, even if a contract exists with a major publisher. That's step one. Step two, if you think of marketing, it has been my experience that large publishers do basically nothing to market most books, except perhaps for the, you know, just like in the, you know, 1% and the 99%. If they'll have a book by some, you know, movie star, yes, they'll spend some money, but that to us is not serious literature. So we see that publishers, traditional publishers are basically not doing what they ought to do. If you then move to the financial side of the business, we have seen large publishers try to convince an author or, or her estate to basically grant electronic rights to that large publisher for the same royalty rate that physical books would command. You know, seven and a half percent or 15 percent, you know, best cases, 25 percent. We find that ridiculous. Why? Because the cost of producing, of producing an ebook is a fixed cost, which in my case, you know, amounts to about two solid weeks of my time, of which I would say in round numbers, two days are spent, you know, figuring out who owns the electronic rights. Uh, another day is spent basically physically scanning the book. And the rest of seven days is spent finding the 1% to 2% of errors that the optical character recognition software cannot find by itself because humans are smarter than machines, there. And so, you know, to keep 75% or 85% of electronic revenues for a product that costs 10-man days to produce and then zero to the publisher to keep alive, unlike uh, physical books where you need, of course, to... First, print them, which costs money. Second, to store them, which is a pain in the neck. And third, to accept returns, if that is still the case out there, which is a total nightmare. So to pay yourself 85% of revenues to do something that costs 10 man days and then allows a book to be out there forever is simply unfair to the authors. It's you know, akin in my book to slavery. And so uh, being the husband of an author, it is my intent to uh, do what I can to make the very large publishers, such as Penguin or Random House or others, understand that the world has changed. And if they want to stay relevant, they have A, to offer some services to authors, such as editorial services, marketing, and they have to be fair in the share of the revenue. If they're not, then they will go by the way of products or services that have become unnecessary, such as, say, telephone operators or travel agents and so forth.
1: So I know you went into this a little bit, but could you just elaborate on the timeline for each of these projects? Does it all take place within the two-week period that you mentioned?
0: So these are man days of work. We will soon publish a remarkable memoir by a woman who was a Nazi uh, during World War II who joined the Hitler Hitlerjugend when she was 17 years of age or so. And uh, Rose, she was a journalist also, so she rose in the highest echelons of Nazi propaganda and so forth, and then uh, was arrested by the U.S. Army, was denazified, and in the 50s finally realized what a terrible mistake this all had been. And she wrote a memoir in 1963 in German, which was promptly translated into English and has become almost impossible to find. And so figuring out who the descendants of this now dead woman who spent the rest of her life from the mid-60s until she died in 2010 in India uh, was, let me tell you, not an easy exercise. It took me about six months of work on and off, okay? Working through her two German publishers, an association of uh, authors in Germany, and then finally I found her descendants in various places in Europe. And so, you know, finding the owners of the electronic rights can be very complex. Another complexity is that even if we find the children of authors, usually they don't have the original contract with their you know, father or mother signed in the, say, 60s or 70s. So then the challenge becomes to get a major publisher who has let the book go out of print, disgorge a copy of that contract. And we have found that some large publishers will do whatever they can to not let the family see the contract for reasons, I will let your listeners guess. And so that has taken some work and time. But finally, you know, when one gets a contract, it takes 10 minutes to read it and to figure out who really owns the electronic rights. So uh, these are the two types of issues that will slow down the whole process. But generally speaking, between the time, assuming we don't have a huge queue of books to do and, you know, our bandwidth is such that, you know, we don't intend to publish much more than 20 to 30 titles per year. So if the pipeline is not overwhelmed for some scheduling reasons, I would say that between the time we decide to do a book and the time the book is out, it's certainly less than six months, sometimes even less than two or three months.
1: That's a fast turnaround. Because I know when you're talking about the big publishing houses, they're generally on a two to three year schedule.
0: It's the same. Suppose you want to send a letter to your friend in Europe You know, you could indeed send it by boat and it'll take, I suppose, three weeks to get there. You can send it airmail. If you're lucky, it'll get a week or it may get lost. Or you can send an email. So if the publishing industry is still at the steamship age, it will go down the same way steamships went down. Because now we have email as opposed to a steamship carrying a physical letter. So, again, it is our intent in part to help the publishing industry understand all of this. If I can do it in three months, I don't see why Penguin or Random House can't do the same.
1: Well, Patrick, I appreciate you bringing your unique perspective to this discussion. Thank you so much for talking to me. Great. Thanks again. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.
0: This has been The Pubcast. Find more episodes, read our blog, or send feedback by visiting us on the web at www.thepubcast.org.